When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers. Tristan, how you doing? All things considered, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you, Hythe. How about yourself? Uh, can't complain. Uh, football's coming off of a uh, fun victory uh, over USC uh, and is now going to go up against former OC Kenny Dillingham. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, for now, the article that you wrote this week uh, is about the, uh, the, the tennis teams um finishing up their fall competition uh my understanding is the tennis team sort of split up their uh their season into a fall campaign and they sort of take a winter break and then they do a spring campaign um so this was the conclusion of their fall campaign is that do i got that right that's correct uh the spring campaign is going to start up at different times for the men and women and that will be more centered on matches with entire teams from other schools the Mm -hmm. fall competition was mostly based on tournaments in which generally multiple schools were represented so like invitationals invitationals yeah invitationals and the the uh the ita uh championship series uh so uh you uh you you wrote up the uh the men's and the women's tennis teams um uh the the uh you know the men's ita uh the the super regional singles champion uh quinn vander castile uh went down to the ita national championships but i think as we talked about last week he got knocked out like as we were recording you know in the initial uh round um to uh to to a texas player um uh although i think he was the guy who who like won the whole damn thing right he was. Uh, the last time we were recording, Quinn Van de Castile, the, who had won the Super Regional in singles, very impressive when you're in a, a Super Regional that includes the Bay Area schools, uh, had just lost his opening match to uh, a player named Micah Braswell of right. UT Austin. And as I was doing the article, I looked up the final results and traced Braswell. And not only is he the ITA Fall National Champion, he went through the championship bracket and never lost a single set. He had to go to an extra game once, but he yeah. eliminated every opponent in two sets. Yeah. So like who, who knows how far, so like, you know, nobody was going to touch that dude. So, no. And also like, who knows how far Vandic steel would have gone, you know, if he'd drawn literally any other <laughs> opponent, you know? Um, so, yeah. 
Um, he he did. Vandexfield did wind up in the consolation bracket, though, right? That's correct. Uh, as he was eliminated in the first round, he entered consolation play, and he picked up a victory in consolation play. There was a, uh, a player from Glendale Community College, actually, which was interesting that uh, that wouldn't be NJCC competition, but it was mm. uh, it was an NCAA uh, tournament sponsored by the ITA. So that's something. Something I might read up a bit more about at some point. Uh, but he did notch a victory at the Nationals. Uh, he was eliminated from consolation play to a player by a player from the University of Arizona in the following round. But he won a Super Regional, and he got there, and he won a match. And again, it's very possible that given a different draw, he might have made it to uh, round of 16, or who knows, maybe even round of 8, if, if he hadn't run into the juggernaut he did. Yeah. Um, so how the rest of the men do? Uh, they, they went down to the uh, the Jack Kramer Invitational in uh, in California, right? Yep, they went down to the Jack Kramer Invitational in Southern California. Bit of a mixed bag. Van de Castile, obviously, I mean, if he had been in the Jack Kramer, he probably would have cleaned up. But the rest of the team without him, they found some success. There were uh, four players. Uh, in singles play, two of them were eliminated from the main bracket in round one, but uh, two other players advanced and and got a little further in the tournament. And there were also some victories in in consolation play. So I would say it was a decent outing for the men uh, in singles. As I've been following the team a little this fall, it had appeared in some prior tournaments that really it was doubles where they shined. And it was interesting, it kind of reversed here because the doubles teams got eliminated almost immediately. And hmm. in reading the tournament standings, uh, there was no consolation play in doubles. So there really wasn't much of a chance to pick up any victories there. I'm not sure if that's anything other than coincidence, but it was just interesting that uh, a team that had really been playing playing strongly in doubles all of a sudden did better in singles when they were closing out the season there. Hmm. Uh, uh, so how did the, uh, well, how far did they make it in singles play? Uh, singles play. They had, uh, they had, uh, two players who made it to the, uh, to the round of round of 16. So they made it past the initial round. Uh, mm -hmm. no one, no one made it past, uh, past round two. I'm afraid though. There was a victory in consolation play after that. So there was, you know, a, a, another win you could pick up. So that does it for the, uh, the men's, you know, fall season. And then they take it back up in the spring, um, where they're it's pack 12, you know, play, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to start with a Pac-12 team. They're actually going to host University of the Pacific early in January, but then they'll move into Pac-12 play later in the spring. And then the the women's uh, tennis team um, didn't have anybody at the ITA uh, uh, Nationals, so the entire team, uh, like undivided, uh, uh, went to the uh, San Diego State Fall Classic. Um, how did that go? That was a pretty strong showing. Uh all six active players from previous tournaments were present at the San Diego State. Uh, they were organized into three doubles teams and also played in singles. And the uh, the SDSU Classic wasn't a single elimination tournament. Everybody got to play a singles match and a doubles match every day, although your future opponent was determined by your success on previous days. Hmm. Uh, once again, a little surprising. Like it's power matched? 
yeah, within it's brackets uh-huh. within the brackets, and the brackets themselves were were split up. It wasn't all one giant bracket. There was a red, a red, white, and a black. If I could enunciate my W's and my R's, a red, white, and a black because uh, it's San Diego State. Uh, those yeah, are colors. exactly. I get it. Uh-huh. Aztec colors. Uh, and interestingly, again, uh, this is probably just a coincidence, but uh, kind of similar to the men and perhaps even more so doubles play was where this team had really shined before. And in fact, the only ranked entrant that they had in fall competition was the uh, number 56 duo of Sophie Lucher and Uxia Martinez Morale. And they kind of struggled as doubles players. They went one and two through three days of competition and the other two pairs also went one and two. So the team ended up with only a, uh, a three and six overall record in doubles play, but in singles play, it was quite impressive. They ended up with an overall uh, 12 and six record. Hmm. Uh, Lucher and, uh, and Karen Young, who are, uh, are both juniors went, won their matches Friday and Saturday and were power matched on Sunday against opponents from UC Boulder. And those were tough matches, close matches, but unfortunately neither duck was able to win. The real surprise in this tournament was that there was a freshman phenom. Uh, Tilda Yagare from Sweden came out and swept her competition. She went 3-0 in singles in the white bracket, Hmm. which was very impressive for a young freshman coming on. So that's a player to keep an eye on. Uh, Yeah, that is cool. Um, So that finishes up the women's, you know, uh, a fall campaign. They're off longer than the men are. You you said that the men take on the University of Pacific in January, um, but the 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 women aren't in action again until February, right? That's correct. And they actually have to uh, leave Eugene for their first match. They're going to, I guess, future Big Ten rival Iowa on February Mm. 23rd. Maybe it's the start of a new rivalry. Well, I I can't think of anywhere more lovely to be in February than Iowa. Uh, Yeah, Maybe they'll be indoors. Yeah, I should hope so. Uh, All right. Well, uh, uh, it sounds like a good start uh, so far to the the fall campaign. There's certainly more than we've talked about tennis in a long time. Um, uh, uh, Yeah, we'll we'll be keeping an eye on them. uh, And uh, I hope they have a good break, you know, over the the winter season. All right. We'll take a break. Uh, When we come back, uh, we'll talk about uh, the football series history with uh, USC and uh, with ASU. So uh, last week, uh, you wrote up, as you've been doing all season long, uh, the Oregon versus USC series history. Uh, this one's been a little less bittersweet than the other ones uh, than that you've written, because uh, this one's not coming to an end, unlike mm-hmm. uh, like six, I think, of the other ones that you've written. Um, yeah, I think that's right, boy. Now that we're getting down to the end, it's starting to become real. Yeah. Um. The uh, uh, it, what kind of you know, you, you sort of dive into some of this historical research and and find some you always find some interesting fun facts. Anything that you didn't know before? As far as things I didn't know before, I think probably the thing that stuck out is actually. Uh, well, let me see. Um 
the big thing I think is just how long it had actually been in between victories over U- USC, especially in LA. Uh, uh, my, yeah. my biggest memory, and uh, this is something I don't go into the article, but since on this podcast, you know, we go into the writing process, I can reveal some things that I left out for, I guess you could call it professionalism, but I remember as a nine-year-old boy in 1994, uh, my household didn't have cable television. We only had broadcast growing up. It was one of the few luxuries I was deprived of in my childhood. You know, we all have to complain to our therapists about something. Mm. So I didn't actually get to see a lot of uh, Oregon Ducks football games on television until the late 90s and even beyond, frankly. So a lot of times I was listening on the radio and as a nine-year-old, you know, sometimes games would just sort of go over my head and I think, oh, shoot, I missed the game. And I remember very clearly uh, one Sunday morning, I had known that Oregon had gone down to L.A. in 1994. And I knew Danny O'Neill, the starting quarterback, had not played in the game. And I decided I wasn't going to listen listen to this game. I don't know, maybe I had an appointment or something I was doing that day. I hadn't listened to the game. And I remember thinking, all right, I'm going to see the sports page in the Oregonian when I go down the stairs. And I sort of tried to visualize in my mind what it would look like if Oregon had actually somehow won that game. Because I knew it was unlikely. But it's like, if I visualize it, maybe it'll be real. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, I get to the bottom of the stairs and my father had put the front of the sports page right at the bottom of the stairs Graziani led Ducks KO Trojans. Oh, yeah. I mean, they killed him in 94. It, mean... it was 22 7, and yeah. that's, you know, a sizable margin even by modern standards. And of course, this is 1994. So scoring 22 I mean, points is that this wasn't the Iowa offense. Well, and I mean, like, you know, the, the Ducks had beat him, I think, like one other time, I think, like in, in, in the 80s. There had been and one that upset was in, in Eugene. The 80s. Right. Yeah, uh, they they tied in 1980. I remember that one like like Mike Garrett was on the call. It was crazy. It was like a seven yeah. seven tie, and it was like the greatest thing that had ever happened to the Ducks as they tied, <laughs> you know, USC. <laughs> you know, and, and and before that, like, was the last time the Ducks won was in like 1971. You uh, know, yeah, it, when it was I... like like from 1972 to 1993, it was like. You know, how many years, like 20 years or whatever that is of playing USC, it was like 18 wins for USC, like one tie, one win for the Ducks, you know, and uh, and then in 94, you know, it was like, you know, Oregon killed them. Um, and, and, and then the they did. That, yeah, that was the thing that stood out to me is, you know, I'm thinking Graziani himself literally had not been born yet the last time that team had won a game in the LA Coliseum and he comes in as a backup and they just wallop him. Yeah. That was the start of the special season. That's when we all knew 1994 could be be something in, in many ways that game was the, I mean, it wasn't, it was that game. Wasn't the end of the suffering Mm -mm. like, it, it, it wasn't like the, the suffering had ended by then, but it was like the ratification that the suffering was over. Um, you, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, 
because like I don't know, like like that, that game that, that game happened I think in in early October, didn't it? It was early October and I think the thing is that the suffering a lot of us feel had generally ended when they finally started getting bowl games again in the last two years under Bill Musgrave. But then after Musgrave left, there had been some kind of years. And so the the question is, is this sustainable or, or, or are we going to backslide into what we saw before we finally made it back to bowl games? And that 94 season, it comes off the heels of a 93 season where there were some real disappointing losses, including yeah. the 30-point comeback by Cal and yeah. failing to make a bowl game and losing the Civil War game against Oregon State for the first time in a long time. Yeah, and I mean, like, that 93 season, like, it, it, yeah, it felt like a lot of backsliding. And, like, on top of that, the 94 season, like, it didn't exactly start great, you know? Like, no. they had lost to, they had lost in Hawaii, and they lost to Utah, you know, in Autzen Stadium. Um, you know, like, they were, it was a two-and-two two team that, you know, that where, like, one and one of the wins was over, like, Portland State. Yep. You know, when, you know, when they went down to USC, and, like, USC was a ranked team, because they're always a ranked team, yeah. you know? And, and it was, like... Yeah. And then and then they killed them. And then, you know, Oregon lost like one more game for the rest of the season until they, you know, they go to the Rose Bowl. The the pick, you know, the pick is like three weeks later. Right. Because mm -hmm. I remember that that one's that's that one's late October. Yes. Um, and like, yeah, like the, the yeah, in many ways, like that game, I'm, I'm like, you know, n nothing's more important than 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 the pick, you know, but like and, and nothing's more important than than going to the Rose Bowl in the first time in like 70 years or whatever it was. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, but like in many ways, I I feel like that win over USC and like the emphatic win, just like the just defensively shutting them down. Like, like we're, I mean, cause that was always the thing about playing USC was that like, and we were talking to Alicia about this, you know, when we're recording them just like every year playing USC was like, they, they just, the talent that they had a receiver was like you, the only way that you were ever even going to be in a game with USC was like just trying to keep up with scoring against them. You it know, had to be a shootout too much yeah. firepower. And the idea that you could like shut them down defensively, like you know forget it there was no way your defense would be good enough to do that and so like you know uh, you know that was the thing was it was about that 94 team was that actually you know like people you know i guess i i, I guess people should think of it this way because the pick is a defensive play that was a defensive led team you know that was gang green yeah, yeah that was the first time in forever when oregon had been able to say you know we can, I mean, that was game gangrene. gangrene was in the 50s, but like, oh, yeah. yeah, like, uh, but like, yeah, like that, that was a team where I think like the, the average number of points that they gave up was in the teens, mm -hmm. you know, it was like it was like 19 points, something like that. Um, yeah, and like holding USC to seven and like Cal, which I believe was a ranked team at the time they played Cal, uh, you know, to seven points. You know, like they, they held Arizona, which was a ranked team at the time they played them to like nine points. They mm -hmm. held Arizona State, I think, to single digits. Um, uh, Oregon State was, a, was another like low scoring game. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, like, you know, it was really like defensively or, you know, or oriented team, which like, 
you know, just sort of the, 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 the metrics of football, like you have to actually like accumulate serious talent and depth to be a defensively oriented team. And like for a team coming out of the suffering, like you just never thought that was ever going to be the case. Like the way that just like observing football teams, you know, over a long career of observing football teams, it's like they always, when they're coming out of like, when they're coming out of the shit, like it's always like the offense first, because like you just need a quarterback and like one or two dudes. And like, you just need to get like, you know, you just need to hit a big play. You know, you only need to be right once, you know, like you only need to be right. Like one play out of three, right. Cause you get three downs. Um, you know, like you get to put like five receiving options out there and only one of them needs to be good. Right. Whereas the defense, they have to be right all the time against every player on all three downs to get off the field. Right. And they don't know what the play is. Right. Mm -hmm. Which means like they got to react. So like the defense is much more about, you know, talent and depth and, 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 coaching and development you know and as much less about like luck and 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 so forth and so like defense always comes second like it is or it's always the it's always the later thing to develop and it's like defensive led teams are never the flash in the pan like or or to the extent that they can exist for a single year it's because sort of like how oregon state had last year you know where it was much like sixth year seniors you know, and, and like, well, okay, they're good for a year, and then they all graduate. Well, that wasn't, you know, that was in Oregon, right? Like, that was the, the reason that 94 team is celebrated is because that, like, well, shit, man, what happens, like, the next, like, five times they play USC, you know? Like, they go, like, four and five the next five times they beat, you know, they play USC, because, like, that wasn't, Oregon wasn't done, you know? Like, that wasn't, you know, or, Oregon's been, like, running the conference since that 94 you know like what's the record since that 94 game since that 94 game it it definitely tilted in favor of oregon let me see if i can remember i think the usc got him got him in 97 they beat him in 98 with akili smith they beat him in 99 that was a late kickoff game that went to triple overtime i was at we didn't get back to portland until 2 a.m um uh 2000 that was another win uh i don't know yeah, 01 was oh one uh, was the close game. Oh one was the close game, and I put the the anecdote in there. That that was the first time Pete Carroll came to Autzen, and it was a really close game. It was another one of those Joey Harrington captain comeback stories. Yeah. And I still remember this was before Autzen had been expanded to its current capacity. So so it was closer to a forty five thousand capacity than a fifty four thousand capacity. But they had handed out these inflatable balloons yeah. that fans could bang against each other to create additional noise. Mm. And the sto- story, as I recall, is that USC filed a formal complaint with the conference after the game that that was just too much. And the Pac-10 immediately banned items like that. So it got so loud, apparently it, it hurt poor Pete Carroll's nerves. They had to stop handing out balloons. So let's see. I know that I know they beat him in Andy Ludwig's first year because I was screaming about it. Um, yeah. And then 0506, they obviously won because those were like the greatest teams of all time. Time, yeah. 
let's see. Oregon beat him in 07 because that was Chip Kelly's first year as coordinator. But then they... That was supposed to be the changing of the guard, but unfortunately right. injuries caught up to Oregon later on that season. Yeah, and then, had... then 2009's the Halloween game. That That's was the Friday actual yeah. changing of the guard. 2010, of course, Oregon goes yeah. undefeated. Um, 2011 was that, you know, uh, was the, the, the Lane Kiffin, you know, Oregon should have won that game, but didn't. Uh, a game that was the you know the three point you know uh then Oregon wins I, I they basically win every game that they play except for the one bad season that they had in 2016 it's just I can't remember how many times they played because they didn't play every one of the games because you know when the Pac-12 comes into existence they they're in the know, other they, division yeah yeah and they they rotate out and I just what I can't remember is how many times they played all, all I know is that every time they played with the exception of the Lane Kiffin 2011 year and the 2016, you know, crap year, uh, you know, Oregon is, is undefeated against USC, you know, since then, it's just like how many times they played. Let's see. They, they didn't play in 21 or 22. They beat him in the 2020 championship. They yeah, beat him yeah. in 2019. Did they play in 2018? No, uh, they didn't, I, don't I don't think they, think played, they played in, in Ball's first year. No. Yeah. Uh, I think they, they didn't play in the Taggart year. Yeah. Right. They didn't play I know they in the Mariota year. Yeah, they didn't I play know they played in 2015 because Vernon Adams with an SC right. tattoo on his right, arm exactly. had more touchdowns than incompletions. Right. And but they didn't play him in the they, they played him in the one Mariota year, but not the other two, 23 and 24. Okay, so that's uh I get 13 and 7. That yeah. sounds about uh, for, right. Yeah, 94 through last Saturday, I get 13 and 7. I get, so the wins would be 94, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, yep. 2007, 2009, 2010, 2012, 2015, 2019, 2020, didn't play in 21, 22, 2023. 20, so yeah, that's 13. And then the losses are 97, 02, 05, 06, 08. Um, 11 and 16. Yeah, 13 and 7. Uh, so it's yeah. almost two for one since then. And really, yeah. only just because we haven't played him next year. Yeah, exactly. If Williams. <laughs> yeah, if, if Oregon played him in 21, I'm pretty confident that's a win. If Oregon played him in 22, I'm pretty confident that's... I mean, you know, if Oregon played him in 21, obviously that's a win. That was their four and eight season. I'm... I'm, I'm pr- if they played him in 2022, that would have been the conference championship game. Yeah. Like, you know, I had that article ready to go. In fact, the reason that my, my preview article... Uh, about USC this this last week was so long and so detailed was that it was like half of that article incorporated all the stats that I had ready to go for that championship game or the article that should have been that wasn't you know so I had all the like hey you know all the you know that statistical profile ready to go because it's the same team right same coaching staff same quarterback you know most of the same players you know same same offensive style, same defensive style, you know, right. So it was just like, let's compare the 2022 team to the 2023 team and like, see what's same and what's different and see if we can make some extrapolations. So like I had that, like that article and all that statistical analysis are just sitting on my machine. I didn't delete it. I thought about deleting it, but I didn't, uh, you know, made that article better. So like, yeah, man, I, I came to some conclusions about uh, what would have happened uh, in the 2022 mm-hmm. game. Uh, would Mario Cristobal have beat them in 2018? 
Hmm. That's always kind of a coin flip because yeah. uh, Crystal Ball's teams, they always had some definite strengths, but then you just never knew when they just get in their own way. I mean, I mean, Crystal Ball hammered them in 2019. Like... Yeah. No, that's true. That 2019 game was actually quite an offensive showing. Herbert had a, and the receivers did really well that game. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, yeah. So, well, this series is, is uh, far from over. Um, you know, we, what, what, you know, me and Kevin talked about uh, earlier in the week um, on the previous podcast was like sort of, you know, the way that you know usc does not look like a complete team um and uh, you know it's not quite as like obviously one-dimensional as like washington is um but like that you know they don't have a defense and they have a lot of work to do in order to get one um they don't have a you know that their offensive line is in a hole like i i think a lot of people sort of have correctly recognized that their offensive line is in a hole, but like they, what they're not recognizing is that actually Riley knows it. It's a, it's not his fault. It's an inherited situation from Clay Helton. B uh, that like he tried to fix it with portal guys. It's just impossible to do that. Just like no one has ever fixed an offensive line problem. With portal guys, you have to grow it organically and C, you can't see this unless you dive their roster, but, I do that. Uh, he actually is recruited pretty well at the offensive line. It's just, it's not going to bear fruit for another couple of years. So like, mm -hmm. but if you look at his Oklahoma teams, like he took that seriously too. Like he knows it. He he knows you need to grow your, your offensive line organically. And he knows how offensive lines work. It's one of the reasons why the thing that like nobody questions about Lincoln Riley is that he designs a power run game and an RPO game off of it. That's really, really fascinating and awesome and cool. And like, you can't, you can't be a dude who doesn't take offensive linemen seriously because like if, if you don't do that or, or you can't be that dude, if you don't take offensive line play seriously. And the reason that I know that is that like, look, everybody who comes off the Mike Leach coaching tree, like the way that they give like the middle finger to football dad is, uh, is there like, look, look at the way that Mike Leach arranges his, his, like his, his offensive lineman with those super wide splits, but also they're like, they're 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 the type of offensive linemen that he could get are like market values because they're all built like battleships right they're they're huge dudes who can't run blocks so it's like look you, you know they're three stars because they're three stars because they're dudes who are like if you split up their pass blocking grade and their run blocking grade they'd be like five star pass blockers and zero star run blockers and then he's like well, if I just don't ever run the ball, they're five stars to me, so I can pick them up for nothing, you know, and, and right. So and, and I can I'll, make them work at Texas Tech or Washington State or yeah, Mississippi State. Or, yeah, or wherever. Right. So like so. So that's Mike Leach. And, and, and also he never does the RPO because how could you do an RPO, you know, with 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 that type of offensive lineman and he doesn't do power blocking because like, how could you, you needed to do to run, you know, he used to go, go pulling across the formation on a counter or whatever, you know, you know, so like, so, so 
having established that, here's the next thing. Everybody who comes off of Mike Leach's coaching tree you know, gives the middle finger to football dad uh, by, you know, taking the air raid passing pattern and then saying, but I'm not going to do that. That, that, you know, I, I'm not going to strictly, you know, do the no RPO thing and the no run game thing and the no, you know, tight end thing and the no this, that and the other thing. Like, I'm going to diversify it with all these other things that I, you know, I'm going to put my own fingerprints on this. So the my own fingerprints on this that Lincoln Riley did is like, I'm going to marry this to an RPO scheme with power, you know, blocking, which like never in a million years would Mike Leach do that. And like, and I'm going to do this at Oklahoma because at Oklahoma, that's a blue blood program where I can get like blue chip offensive linemen who could actually execute this stuff. So like, there's a reason why that dude has only worked at blue blood programs, you know, like, boy, this has been a long tangent, but I hope it's making sense to everybody that like that for, for anybody who's just like, Oh, for, for anybody who's looking at the fact that like Lincoln Riley's has always had a crappy defense at every place that he's worked and has projected forward to be like, and therefore he will always have a crappy defense. Well, you may be on to something, but who everybody who's looked at the fact that right now he's got a bad offensive line and is therefore saying, well, he's always going to have a bad offensive line. No, that is not a fair extrapolation. You should not do that. That, you know, that's a, that's a that's a momentary thing like it, it it'll it's probably going to last again till 2024 because you can't you you still got to you know you still got to water that bamboo but like uh, you know in 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 the medium term it, it will um you know that that'll change uh but like yeah okay yeah Give give him another another year or two. He will have a Big Ten quality offensive line. He had great offensive lines at Oklahoma, and yeah. he's probably going to use them more creatively than a lot of Big Ten teams as well. Well, I mean, I mean, we'll see if they manage to, you know, put together a defense depending on what happens in the yeah. season. But although, like, how much of a defense do you need in the Big Ten? Where you know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, like I instantly think that team's going to win, like, you know, automatically win eight games, you know? Yeah. Uh, the stoppable force will meet the movable yeah. object and we'll see what the reaction is. Um, all right. Let's talk about the other, uh, the, the article that, you know, is going to go up on a Saturday morning that you've got, uh, well in drafts right now, which is about the, uh, the Arizona state, uh, series history. Um, you know, this one is bittersweet because it is, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to a different conference. Uh, they're, they can't go to a bowl game this year. Uh, you know, they couldn't anyway because they self-imposed that ban and, and they've won three games. So they're, they're out of the running. Um, uh, even if they decided to unimpose their ban, I guess they can't do that. Uh, but like, yeah, uh, you know, no, nobody's going to see that team uh, for a while. Uh, you know, it's good. I, I can tell you from my work on that team, like they're it's it's going to be a minute before they're good. Um, like like even the stuff I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but like even the stuff about that team that's that is good, like because uh, it's not. It, it's not a garbage team. I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, but like, it's not a garbage team at all. It's just, they've, they've had certain adverse circumstances which have conspired to make it look a lot worse than it is. Or actually to make it, to make it actually bad. I mean, it is actually like, it's as bad as it looks. It's just, you shouldn't let the fact that, that that is the case 
cause you to believe that that means that across the board it's nothing but like FCS talent, you know, nobody's actually they have a number of individuals, you know, good pieces. But, and their best overall player was an FCS player at one. Point. Well, that is true. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's actually not. He's just got a great story. Um, they've they've got better players than he is. Um, it's just that e- even those individual good players, he's going to lose them. And so by the time, you know, he gets over this injury problem, the good players he inherited are going to be gone. So like he's it's going to be like sort of starting over again. I mean, not totally because he did get some good new players from the portal process. It's just like, he's not, he's not in a position where he can just sort of snap his fingers and in a zero year turnaround, you know, the way that like Oregon, you know, Dan Lanning for two years now has just been like, Hey, good players just show up and you'll be starters and you'll play at a high level right away. The end, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, Oh, you can't do that at Arizona state. I mean, not right now anyway. And so like, yeah, this is going to be some tribulations for Kenny Dillingham. And so all of this has been a long way of saying Oregon's not going to see Arizona state for quite some time. They're probably not going to make like, I wouldn't project that team to be a bowl team until 2025. And even then they're probably not going to be a bowl team of the same, like, you know, they're probably not going to the same type of bowl that Oregon is probably going to be going to in 2025, knock on wood. Um, so yeah, this will probably be the last time that Oregon sees ASU for a long time. They hadn't seen ASU for a long time either. The last time they had played them was in 2019. So it's like, yeah, long break. Absolutely. And it, at least we get to see them one last time because there are some really memorable matchups in this series. Uh, yeah, I had assumed when I started doing the research for this one that Oregon wouldn't have had a very good record when ASU first joined the conference in uh, in the late 70s to take the Pac-8 uh, up to the Pac-10. I wasn't prepared to see that it was the... I'm counting them up. Yeah, yeah. First nine games between these two programs were all Sun Devils victories. There was mm-hmm. a home and home before they joined the conference, and then uh, the first seven games as Pac-10 opponents in the '80s were all Arizona State victories. Well, that was that was the John Robinson era right before he went to Ohio State, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was pretty was... much the last good coach that they had. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, even even in some of the. Uh, well, th- there were good teams in the mid '90s, but they that had. Was... I mean, if you look at their record, every one of their coaches, their record averages out to be a seven and five coach, yeah. like, <laughs> or the equivalent of seven and five. They weren't playing twelve game, you know, uh, mm-hmm. seasons back then. But like, effectively, like whatever one game over five hundred is, that's what every coach since job John Robinson left for Ohio State in the mid '80s was for for Arizona State. It's like shockingly consistent for for like close on to forty years, you know, all the way through Herm Edwards, uh, and and so far Kenny Dillingham, you know, like yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see if. For so long, you know, national pundits love to say Arizona State is a sleeping giant. Well, they've been taking a nap for a long time. I mean, down it's the there. Program, it's like the definition of mediocrity for like close on to forty years. You know, 
Yeah, and I mean, you bring up geography. They do have some great geography, but just in their history, they've never really been able to harness it. And it's probably going to be tougher in the Big 12 because, well, we'll see what happens in L.A. We'll see what happens in L.A. because you think you want to tap into that L.A. talent. And talent in the Phoenix area keeps growing, but it's, it's it, difficult. I mean, it's home. never made sense. It's never like yeah. they have local talent. They're, you know, they're close to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. They're close to some of the, you know, like, you know, Bishop Gorman in, in L.A. Like, you know, I'd, I'd rather be there than in Tucson. Oh, yeah. You know, like of all the Southwest, you know, of all the different like the Southwest, even though it's sparsely populated, like, you know, it's the other than Las Vegas. It's the town that I'd like to live in the most, you know, of all of that, you know, uh, like, man, I mean, Sleeping Giants, no joke. Like it ought to be more prominent than it is. It's kind of crazy that it's not. Yeah. And just like a lot of programs who have, you know some seemingly natural advantages for whatever reason, there's just never been the right combination of head coach and administration to, yeah. to fully unlock it. You did have the, the 1996 Rose bowl team with, uh, with Jake, the snake there. Mm-hmm. And that was part of a streak in the, in the mid nineties where Oregon struggled after they turned the series around after John Robinson left. We talked when we were going over the Cal history, there was a time when Oregon had a Cal problem. They kind of had an Arizona State problem at the same time, or there was an overlap at the very least, because the Ducks won four games from 99 through 2001, and the 2000 game gets a long part in my article because that that's just one of those games you never forget if you're lucky enough. Oh, yeah. That game was cool. It, it's a really cool one, and it gets even cooler when you dive into the into some of the history of it. As I was reading some old newspaper articles that I was able to find, apparently, uh, Oregon was it was a twelve thirty p.m. kickoff local time. Oregon was supposed to fly out the night before, but weather in Phoenix means they couldn't get cleared to take off from Eugene uh, in time. So they spent two and a half hours on the tarmac, and they didn't get. Uh, to the hotel till 1 a.m. And the coaches woke him up at 7 a.m. to get ready for a 1230 kickoff. And I hesitate to say that's why this game, that game was so crazy, but it makes a little bit of sense why all of a sudden someone named Jeff Crone was going, you know, throw for throw with Joey Harrington. And we get into the crazy matchup where it looks like Captain comeback is about has found his man two yards out of the end zone, and all the tight end has to do is lean forward, and we got a tie game. Whoops, nope. Arizona State safety makes the tackle of his life and stops him at the one. All Arizona State has to do is run out the clock, but after the runner has claw has crossed the line to gain to get the first down they need to run the clock out, there's a fumble. And Oregon recovers and forces overtime. And then gets an interception in overtime, but then misses a field goal. Mm-hmm. So they score in overtime number two. And in overtime number two, Arizona State scores and says, you know what? This has gone on long enough. We're winning it on this play. But the pass is incomplete. It was just, I remember jumping, you know, throwing. Oh, yeah. No, down. it was madness. Yeah. It was absolute madness. That That's one where, yeah, I, it's an away game. So I'm in high school at the time and I'm watching at home and 
my poor father, who was not the sports fan among my parents, my mother was actually the sports fan, mm. uh, to defy stereotypes. He goes into the den and he sees me, you know, rolling around on the ground, pounding the floor, going, they won, they won, I can't believe they won. And he's just doesn't really quite know what to do with his 16-year-old son who looks like he's losing his gosh darn mind. But it, it was a good game to lose your gosh darn mind over. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, we shall have to hope that, uh, that the game this Saturday is not so close. Let's take a break. Yes. Uh, when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll give a little preview of, uh, what we might see on Saturday. So, uh, uh, I, I've got my, um, uh, my preview article, uh, for the 2023 Arizona state team up in drafts it should be going up uh, about the same time that this podcast does. Um, I have reviewed, uh, all the film on, uh, Arizona state in 2023, even the FCS game, because it was uh, sort of suspiciously close. So uh, even though I don't normally watch the FCS games, I was like, oh, I should do this too, which turned out to be, well, I don't know. It, it might have been valuable. So the in, the the thing about Arizona State is that they uh, the, it was weird when I wrote my my preview article over the summer. I was like, well, one of the things that this team's really got going for it is they really stocked up on quarterbacks. You know, they 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 wound up sort of defaulting into winning the Jaden Rashada sweepstakes. So they got him as a true freshman. They also got Drew Pine, who was the Notre Dame starting quarterback last year, and led him to like ten wins. Uh, they got a dude who on paper anyway is a four star, uh, who was at BYU, who's originally part of the 2019 class. So it's like, oh, okay, four star who, you know, who's been around forever. All right. And they had uh Trenton Bourget who was, you know, the, the walk on, but who would like, you know, took over for Emory Jones last year, uh, and like beat Washington, you know? Uh, so it was like, Hey, this, you know, this quarterback room is stacked with different options, you know, all, of all different sort of like skill levels and experience, like can't go wrong, Kenny. Um, so he, and, and then, uh, I think makes the right move and goes with Jaden Rashada to start the year as sort of like, Hey, you know, they, they know they're under sort of the bowl game ban. You know, they, they know they're in, in sanctions here. Um, make an investment for the future. You know, he, he knows he's got a long leash. You know, he he knows he's turned over this whole roster. It's sort of a lost season. Go for it, you know. And and, so, and then, like, Rashada really lays an egg um, uh, against Southern Utah. And then he lays another egg against Oklahoma State. And Oklahoma State, I mean, I know they just beat Lake Oklahoma. Although then they then get like routed by uh, somebody else, you know, the next week uh, by by uh, UCF, right? Yeah. Uh, right. And is this at the point where, for whatever reason, Mike Gundy thinks it's a good idea to rotate three different yeah. quarterbacks? Yeah, it was really nuts. Which which actually is relevant to another thing, which is about uh, whether or not. Uh, Arizona State has a good pass defense, which is actually a really tricky question. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll put a pin in that for the moment. Anyway, Rashada's numbers are real bad um, to start the season, like really bad, like 35% uh, per play success rate for, for you know, passing plays in which he takes the snap. Um, like it's really bad. 
uh, like for, for any of the Ducks fans who are sort of reading news. So, so anyway, I should say he gets hurt and then he basically misses the rest of the season. And then we saw some news reports that was like, hey, he's finally practicing again. And so some Duck fans were just like, oh, my God, we're going to see Rashada and he's going to throw, you know, a million passes and beat us in the desert. And oh, my God, it's happening. And I'm like, you should not be afraid of Rashada. He's not ready to play. Like, I, I watched that guy like, nah, like, I mean, you can see that you you can see the talent like you can see the raw t- material there that for for like what he's going to be if he's properly developed and i think kenny dillingham's a good developer you know you know i wrote a whole article about it before the 2022 season um uh but like nah that's that's on him right now um so anyway, like their quarterback situation, just ridiculous. Pine winds up getting hurt. Conover can't play like at all. Like, don't I please don't ask me to elaborate on that. Like he he can't play. He he is available. He's the one other non hurt quarterback. But like it, it he can't play. Um, so it's Borgay, you know, and, and he's a walk on and um and like Borgay's, I don't know, man, like he's, he's, he's actually not a bad quarterback, really. Like he has most of the, like the mental and, and, and many of the physical attributes you would want in a quarterback. Like he's, he's a pretty cool customer. He doesn't really panic or make stupid gunslinger decisions. He doesn't put the ball in danger. He reads the field reasonably well. Um, you know, he's reasonably athletic, you know, he can get himself out of trouble, um, you, you know, like, uh, I actually, you know, he's got a lot of moxie and courage, you know, uh, like I, I, I really like a, a lot of the way that Trenton Borgay plays as a quarterback. And, and the other thing is, you know, I know, I know, you know, what's coming where I'm about to criticize his arm talent, but before mm-hmm. I, I do, I'll say, it's not like he's got a noodle arm or anything. It's not like, you know, he's throwing wounded ducks out there, you know, or, or he's pushing the ball or, or whatever. Like, nah, you know, he, he's got a decent arm, you know, like it's, you know, when he throws the ball, you're not laughing or anything like it's, it's, he throws just fine. It's just when you're watching uh, you know, one of the really good quarterbacks, you know, and they're like placing that ball perfectly, you know, or they're making one of those opposite hash throws that are like, it just sings coming out of his hand or he's dropping it in the bucket 60 yards downfield on a, you know, a contested catch, you know, or something like that. And you're just like, you sit up in your chair and you're like, wow. Uh, like in two years of watching Trent Borgay, he's never thrown a pass. That's made me go. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. like, like not ever. Cause he just doesn't have that arm. Right. Like he he's got the arm to like competently run an offense in a way that's not embarrassing. Um, but, but sort of that's all. And, and like, there's a bunch of clips in my article that like, you can, you, you, you can just watch and see it. I select representative clips and, and you can see that, you know, what, where he's at, like, uh, you know, he, he's, he's not Caleb Williams, you know, he's not Michael Penix, you yeah. know, on the other hand, he's not like Dylan Morris, you know, he's not like, uh, you know, why is this guy playing quarterback, you know, kind of dude. Um, so like, yeah. Um, and that's their quarterback situation. Really, actually, the quarterback situation is not as terrifying, you know, because Borgay, you can win games with Borgay, you know, honestly, if you had the rest of the stuff going on. The the yeah. issue is the offensive line. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, You've watched all the tape on Arizona State. I got to work on one Arizona State game. And as you say, I mean, my impression was, okay, Borgay is a competent quarterback. If you have the right pieces around him, this is someone you can win a few games with. And you can go into the details here, but the one thing that shines out is oh, know, you, this this line because you did you did the Arizona State Washington State game, yeah, and uh, I mean like I, I I you did the preliminary work and then I I I did it as well, but you mm-hmm. know you, your your preliminary work made my my work so much speedier, and I really appreciate you know the work that you do. Like I I, I zipped through it in 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 way faster than I normally do because you'd done all that. Pre- preliminary work and your insights were really you know useful and and many of them appear in my article like almost verbatim i was like yep tristan was right about that just copy paste done uh <laughs> my pleasure glad to be of service. Uh, yeah that was very very useful i mean i'm not i'm i'm not saying that the the stuff that appears in my article are not my thoughts i'm saying mm-hmm. that you know and in on some of them I'm, I'm like no tristan you got that one wrong like that wasn't mm-hmm. Like on one of them, you had it's like, hey, this was a three man rush. And I'm like, did you not see this fourth dude? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> this is why I'm the intern. You know, we're yeah, building right. up experience. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Uh, but like, yeah, the game that you watched was the Arizona State Washington State game. And like one of the reasons I picked that one was that like for, for you to do is that like the, you know, the Washington State defensive ends, you know, are pretty good. And, you know, I thought you'd see a lot of fireworks, uh, you know, in terms of like crushing up uh, ASU's offensive line. And uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, were... well, you take it from here. I mean, you, you saw it like it's that's the central problem, right? That is. And it it was also interesting, at least in that game, they were I think it was at left guard. They were rotating. It was either left guard yeah. or right guard. They were rotating every drive yeah that i was charting except well, at for this really point at this point they don't have enough healthy dudes to even do that to even do that and yeah. I, you know washington state the one because that was that was week nine and now and and by week 11 they didn't even have enough healthy dudes to do that yeah and there were just a lot of that was my first game where i tried grading individual uh players and i'm sure we'll you and i will talk more about that at some point uh but there were there were a lot of yep tackles getting beat tackles getting beat here yep tackles getting beat borgay has yep. got nowhere to go or he's got to hurry the throw and it's just that's the one thing that washington state for a while has been able to really hang their hat on is there's a lot of speed in on that defense yeah. in the front seven and if you've got speed coming off the edge that's going to be a problem, uh, especially yeah. if the if your guard center guard combo is not good enough to make sure that there's a pocket to step up into. And a lot of times there isn't. Now, the film I didn't review is where apparently Kenny Dillingham went out against UCLA and said, I got maybe one more shot to get a win here. To heck with it. We're running the A11. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't quite a 11. I mean, it was some weird stuff though. It was, he did 18 swing gate plays, including an entire drive of it. He had a scatabo throwing passes. He had Jalen Conyers, the tight end throwing some passes. Um, he had a bunch of wildcat snaps like Borgay got injured in the Utah game the week before he, and then he came back and he played against UCLA and it was weird because like he actually, he looked like a little, I won't, I don't want to say gimpy, but he looked a little stiff to start out the game. But then by like midway through the second quarter, like 
I think I think that's when the clip is like I put a clip in my article of him like, you know, the pocket breaks down. And he's got to scramble and he looks just fine. Like he's got to run toward, towards the sideline and he looks perfectly. And I, I think he was just like he just needed the warm up, you know, or like the adrenaline coursing through his veins, you know, but he looks fine, you know, now. So like that, you know, that's good. That makes me happy um, that he, he doesn't seem to be in pain because um, uh, it was like a lower leg injury when he took that sack against Utah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, just, it's it's all just the offensive line. It's just it's an absolute catastrophe. Like it's 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 I mean, it was they were not in a good spot place coming out of the offseason. And then just the injuries that they've gone through is it like it's I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. Um, like I've never seen an offensive line situation this crazy bad before um, to the point where, you know, they're they're playing like true freshman at left tackle. Uh, it's like they, they had a dude that they were counting on, like just announced that he's going to redshirt and transfer out like because he's like i'm not putting up with this anymore like i it's just like yeah it's just really you know and so it's like that's what i was trying to say in the other segment is is that like look they have some individual pieces like the receiver badger is actually really good and the tight end conyers is is really good and scatabo is like you can't tackle that dude's really hard and and borgay is like a serviceable quarterback um and they you know they've got a couple other pieces in fact some of their linemen you know you should knock on wood about this that you know like two of their their linemen i think their center and their right guard like have somehow avoided all of it and have played every game it's just that the two tackles in the left guard they've had to you know they've had to move every single time and like i actually think their right guard is pretty good ramos um uh so it's like you know they've they've got some pieces and then on top of that i think that dillingham is a pretty decent play caller um so like you know i i don't i don't really think you know like people want to sort of focus on or, or because it's interesting and, and fun you know they want to talk about the sort of swing gate stuff i think that was a one-off thing to beat ucla i think they're just sort of going to run their normal offense and want to get out of there you know uh, when they're playing oregon I, i'm just trying to you know explain what the way that their season has gone down it's to, you know they can't really run the ball oh and then on top of that they've had a bunch so like scatabo has gotten like all of their carries. And when I say all their carries, I mean, it's like 90% of their carries. Well, because they got a, a transfer from Cal to Carlos Brooks, who's actually a more effective running back on a per play basis. Like his success rate is close to 70 is like over 70%. And Scatabo is only really like, impressive. Yeah. yeah and Scatabo is only like 52%. Mm. It's because Carlos de Carlos Brooks is actually like a power five running back. Yeah. And like he can do, he can look at a line where the lane is collapsing and like check out of it and go somewhere else. Like he has yeah. that skill set and you could see it at the beginning of the year. Well, he gets hurt. Yeah. And so now it's Scatabo. And here's the thing about Scatabo. He's like awesome in that you can't tackle him, but he doesn't, he's not as good at that sort of thing. And so it's, there's a, just a whole ton of runs with him where it's like, I'm going to hit this hole. <laughs> Uh, is where I'm supposed to go. And that's, and like, if the holes closed, like, well, I'm just going to hit it harder. Yep. You know, <laughs> like, oh, okay, Cam. <laughs> All right. Um, 
You be careful with yourself now. Don't run into those into that guard's butt too hard. Yeah, you know that's sort of and so like their run success rate is not you know is no great shakes you know as as a result of that um because like you know and uh, I mean like their run success it's interesting this this statistically is broken down in my article overall for the year it's at fifty six percent as a success rate, which is pretty good. But then if you br- get drilled down to the numbers even a little bit more, you realize, number one, um, their their yards per carry are is pathetic. It's like 4.15 yards per carry, which is like if you're succeeding at a 56% rate, but you're only getting four yards per carry, that means that like you're just barely getting enough to succeed. Uh, and also they only have like their explosiveness rate is like almost non-existent. It's only like 10% of runs. They get like 10 plus yards. So again, they're like barely getting anything. Number two is that they're pretty much reserving runs for, for short yard situations. So it's like the, they're, they're just not trying unless it's like second and short or third and short. So like that's why their success rate is as high as it is because they're just not even trying when they would when they would fail, um, and and when they do try, it's only in easy situations where like only four four yards is all you need to succeed, and even then they're only succeeding fifty six percent of the time. You know you know when you reserve your rushing for short yardage situations, you know, you've, you made it so easy on yourself that actually, that it's actually bad that your success rate is not more like 60 or 70%, you know? Um, so yeah. And then the other thing is that DeCarlos Brooks's numbers are propping up the whole sample. If you restrict it to just Scatabo, which is what the situation is right now, it's, you know, the, the number collapses down to, to like 52%, which is like, you know, just barely above average, you know? So anyway, their, their run game is actually not really anything to be, to be feared. And then, you know, their passing game is also not you know, really anything to be feared. Like if they can get the ball to one of their good receivers, like, you know, Badger is really fast and Conyers is really hard to break down, uh, bring down and Scadabo is really hard to bring down for the other reason. Like he's just hard to tackle. Conyers is really big. He's like, Conyers is like, you know how Terrence Ferguson is just like, oh my God, you don't want that guy to catch a stop route and then turn up field and then be running through like three DBs. Yeah, if you're, he's got to run over over yeah. all your dbs again. yeah like Con- conyers is like that but like even thicker yeah yeah he <laughs> yeah he's like that it's like like please don't let that guy catch the ball and then and then like you know uh, like one of oregon's like stick figure dbs trying to tackle him like yeah. oh my god please yeah it's um, like you're playing toad and you just got hit by bowser when you're playing mario yeah yeah, yeah right gonna go so like leaning the other way you know, but just like they don't, they don't have the wherewithal to to keep up. Defensively is actually far more to the the interesting question, and I'm sure you noticed this. Um, it's that like they ha- and this was a huge surprise to me because uh, because of what their their off season situation was. They really turned around 180 degrees. They've got two really good defensive tackles, uh, number zero and number 99. They were uh, holding down the fourth. They definitely showed up in the, especially in the way Wazoo was playing them. Yeah, and um, and, and, and like it, it's crazy because when I wrote my ASU preview way back in May, like they didn't have those guys because ninety nine. Here's the crazy thing: ninety nine fight is a true freshman, 
which is like bonkers. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And then number zero, Mallory is a transfer from Michigan state. And like, we didn't think that he was going to, his transfer was going to go through. In fact, uh, Chris Cartman, the two four seven dude, like explicitly in a tweet was just like, it's not going to happen. So like shows what he knows. Um, he also thought that Jordan Tyson wasn't playing against Utah and he clearly was. So I don't know. Dude's smoke smoking crack. Anyway, the, uh, I mean, not literally, but anyway, yeah. uh, the, like the, 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 here, here, here's the thing. Um, so so their defensive tackles are, are are actually like surprisingly good um and like immovable like crazy immovable like like they're just boulders like crazy immovable and they have uh some pretty good defensive ends bj green who's been there for a long time but nobody knows his name it's crazy he gets like a bunch of sacks every year and nobody knows his name i don't know why bj green I don't know his name, everybody. I don't understand why nobody knows this guy's name. He gets a ton of sacks every year. It's crazy. So anyway, BJ Green's a good defensive end. They got a bunch of other good defensive ends. Um, uh, that you know, they 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 had a couple of returners who didn't play last year, but who 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 turned out to not be bad in Matus and Stansbury. Um, and then they got some dudes out of the portal, uh, um, Dorba and uh, Clayton Smith and uh um uh one of the guy whose name is escaping me right now um uh vamping vamping online scrolling uh uh uh, uh oh oh a juco named o'neill um that's why i couldn't remember him because he's not actually from the portal um so like uh uh yeah so so it's a pretty aggressive you know four down defense they have two tackles in the middle who are pretty good uh green and dorba are both sitting on six sacks you know for the season they had good uh they had you know smith who could rotate in at sort of a similar level smith is skinny is kind of the deal um and uh so he's really just just a pass rush specialist like you really just want to bring him in uh, on just passing downs you don't want him like setting the edge uh because he can't um but then it turns out like o'neill the juco and matus and stansbury um the returners who didn't play last year but like it turns out they can play like hey you can rotate those guys in as depth so like they were running like six dudes deep you know, with their defensive end spots. Um, and so they could get like really, you know, they could get real loose with it. Um, uh, and, and like, that's really what was fueling them on the defensive line. Well, so here's what happens. Uh, a, a few things. And uh, let me set the table a little bit further. Uh, th- this stuff appears in my article. I don't really think their secondary is real good. And I think their linebackers are straight up liability in coverage. Like they're w- w- the linebackers are running like sort of straight ahead, you know, on a blitz or uh you know plug in the run they're not bad like on a Mm -hmm. straight line but if you need them to like run laterally or or backpedal to cover a pass or to like take the right angle or change direction suddenly they're they're just a liability um and then there's problems with the secondary i mean they're they're not the worst secondary but they're they're I don't know. I, I would I would say that they're probably I don't know maybe like eighth or ninth best out of the Pac-12. Like they're they're good enough so that if the pass rush is like if the pass rush needs two seconds to get home, they're good enough to cover for those two seconds. But they're not good enough to cover like any longer than that. Yeah. So like that was the crazy number that I found was that in four of the games that they played, 
they are given up explosive passes at a 22% rate. In another four games that they played, they're given up explosive passes at only a 9% rate. Or, so it's like, it, yeah, it's like this wild oscillation. And it's not like beginning of the year, end of the year th- either. It goes, it's back and forth. It's like, you know, good game, bad game, good game, bad game, you know? And it's just a function of how good of the offense that they're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, So, Here's so and you can also detect this. This is also in my article, the the third down uh, short, short yardage, long yardage. So when you see a big disparity between um, a pass uh, third inch versus the pass third and short third and long, what that means is on third and short. uh, The the, the pass rush, the, the defensive ends, they have to play the run, right? Mm-hmm. It's short yardage, right? So they can't pin their ears back. And the secondary has to defend the pass. On the other hand, on third and long, well, that's a passing down. So the pass rush can really get after the quarterback. So and the routes are going to take longer to develop right. on longer yardage. So it so it's not all on the secondary, right? The the mm-hmm. pass rush can sort of come alive. So if you see a huge disparity in pass down in in pass defense success rate between third and short and third and long what that's telling you is the pass rush is real good and the secondary is real bad or the pass coverage is real bad linebackers potentially inclusive and for arizona state it's flipping enormous uh it's it's uh uh let's see if i can find it yeah, uh, yeah, it's a forty-one percent third and short pass success rate. It's eighty-seven percent uh, uh, third and long. You know, so that's all. You know, yeah. f- forty-five <laughs> percentage points worth of difference. Yeah, it's it's that means the secondary sucks and the pass rush is awesome. Um, so a couple things to know. First of all, they lose a couple of their best dudes. Uh, out of the pass rush, Dorba gets hurt and uh, Matus gets hurt, which both of that those situations suck. They still have four guys that they can rotate, including the guy who I think is best among them, which is BJ Green. Um, uh, uh, and the other thing is on the defensive line, while Mallory and Fight are really good, um, like the depth behind them is bad. And so when they have to rotate out or if they get exhausted, like, you know, you can do whatever you want. Um, And on top of that, like the type of run play that they can defend, they can really just defend the, the, the advantage that they get from having those two awesome defensive tackles. It's just one type of run play, which is inside zone. Yeah. Like, even if you're in, I have a ton of clips of my article. It's super clear. Or just watch the tweet that I sent out about, which has all 10 of the runs that Washington called, where it's like, like seven of them are inside zone and they get tackles for loss. One of them is a sweep to the boundary where they're an idiot for calling it. And then, <laughs> but two of them are counters to the outside where they just run around the defensive tackles and uh, mm-hmm. they get 10 plus yards. So yeah. again, they're idiots for not calling that all the time. Uh, but like, yeah, it's like you, you can't move those guys on inside zone, but if you call literally any other run play, it's like, you know, the, the offense succeeds at like a 70% rate. It's like such a huge disparity. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's exactly what Texas tech's defensive run profile looks like. I was getting vibes from Lubbock. Yes, I 
definitely remember from that preview, you mentioning their two <laughs> defensive tackles. Yeah, and I it's would... like exactly the same thing. Yeah. Where they've got like two good defensive tackles, so don't run inside zone against them. But that's it. And you can run anything else. You can run power. You can run outside. Anything. Run anything else. So what does Oregon do? Three inside zone runs in a row against them. Like, oh, my God, dude, what are you doing? Yeah, anyway. Hopefully they learn from that experience. Uh, or or the maybe offensive the offensive line, line is, is ready to move mountains now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's yeah. that. that Yeah, I sort of got the feeling that maybe Oregon was sort of testing their offensive line in week two. And maybe they'll have they'll think, hey, it's week 12 now. And we have the opportunity for some A-B testing here. Um, so I, I don't know. It's interesting. You know, perhaps perhaps even though I just said, hey, don't do that, maybe they'll do it, you know, for exactly that reason. Anyway, I will at long last come to this conclusion. Here's one of the things that uh, that Arizona State does on third downs. Because they had like six defensive ends, but only like two tackles who were functional, what they would do on third downs is they'd pull one of those two tackles and they'd put in a third end, which is something you would only notice from watching film, mm. right? Uh, and uh, to, so they'd be like a super pass rush, mm. right? Which is like super effective unless you ran the ball. Run the ball on passing downs, yep. Which Get is what Utah mismatch. did. And Utah, ah. that's how Utah killed them. That's how Utah, in fact, there's a drive in which Utah has three different 10 plus yard runs. And I picked out, you know, I just picked sort of a random one of them. Uh, and it's, I mean, I mean, and it's the same thing. And it's like, look, this is, and like, I even showed you, like, if you go back and look at the, like the, the rush defense success, it's like, look, the exact same run that they stuffed against Utah in the previous clip compilation on second down, when it's the two defensive tackles in, they run exactly the same play on third and six, but now it's the three defensive end configuration and green is bumped over to be the quote unquote defensive tackle. They move that guy aside because he's just a defensive end and they run for 14 yards. It's just that I don't know if necessarily they're going to do that because they're down two defensive ends now. So I don't know. Maybe I just went on that whole little rant for nothing. Um, it was just a really cool thing to notice. And uh, I don't know. Maybe people will pat me on the back for noticing it. And it's also something our, uh, everyone out there listening can look for. See if you can find yeah. a substitution when they go in on third down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, that's what you're looking for is uh, they, they'll pull 99 or zero. And then it, we, usually what they do is they move 30. They have 35 who's an end. And so normally he's on the outside and they move him to be on one of the t t tackle spots. And then they'll have three who always has to play on the outside because he's too skinny to be a defensive tackle. And then they'll have like 14 um, or 49 uh, or uh, yeah, excuse me, 15 or 49 um, uh, uh, be the be, replace green um as the uh, uh you know as the as the as the end um so so keep your eye out for 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 that uh 
you know, on third downs. And let's see if Oregon watches film and exploits that by running on like third, you know, a, a down that ASU thinks is a passing down, like let's say third and six, third and seven, something like that, where it's still reasonable to expect Bucky Irving to pick that up, you know, like maybe not third and 10, but like third and six, third and six, they'll do, they'll do that assuming that they think they have enough depth at defensive end. You know, I did just say that they have two guys down, so maybe they yeah. don't, but like, um, you know, let's see that that'll be an interesting thing to watch out for, but it's like, that's really to the extent that ASU is a threat at all. It's that it's that you can make a mistake against them in the running game. But even having said that there are multiple opportunities to exploit them in the running game. That's one of them, the three defensive end thing, but also just run power, or just run to the outside because their linebackers can't run laterally, you know, run cutbacks or press and bounce, run literally anything except for that's how UCLA lost. That was the fucking nuts thing about watching Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly should have won that game. Go, go look at the net success rate graph that Parker Felling produces. It was like you UCLA outplayed them. I mean, they should have won that game. You know, they, they held Arizona State to whatever. It was only 17 points. You, you should win games that you hold the opponent 17 points to. And they were driving the field. It's just like they would get to fourth down or they would get to the red zone or whatever, and it would be like three inside runs. And like, what did I just say? The one thing that Arizona State can stop, <laughs> you know? It was yep, just like, stop. Chip, do you not watch film at all on your opponent? And I think we know what the answer to that is probably. Yeah, I mean, that's the old stubborn chip is stubborn. You saw, even when he was having great success at Oregon, there were a handful of times where it's like, why are you still doing this? Yeah. Did you, uh, uh, you, you, you watched the entire uh, ASU-Wazoo uh, game. Is there anything else you wanted to, to add from your observations? From those observations, you picked up on, you know, anything basically that I picked up on and more. I mean, on on the defense, it was definitely evident that the linebackers can be a liability. Wazoo was able to able to exploit that pretty, pretty well. Uh, I am curious how much wild scat we're going to get out of Mm -hmm. this. They had some some success with that. We'll see what their what the health situation is like. But you know, I just, I kind of feel bad for this team. This is a yeah. team that, you know, might have, uh, I don't know if healthy they would have made a bowl game, but they might have been playing for a bowl game. But Well, they can't. They impose that. Well, that, that, that's true. Right. They impose they impose the ban. I had, I had somehow forgotten about that because it just never really came up. But, uh, you know, obviously, Oregon fans, we have good feelings toward Kenny Dillingham. I think he did a... a perfectly fine job his one year here and uh i hope he gets it turned around and maybe next year in the big 12 he'll have a few more healthy bodies he can try to play with i mean that that's what i've been trying to say this whole time is that like he's got a bunch of pieces like i like his ends i like two of his tackles i he's got a one of the cornerbacks row torrents is I think he's got some problems in coverage, but at least he's like six, four and uh, he moves fairly, even though he's six, four, he moves really well. Um, I think he used some better coaching, frankly, but like right. he's potentially a dude who just, who makes it to the NFL on body alone. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so like I'm just trying to list pieces that he's got. And so that's sort of like a piece. It's more like raw material than anything else, but it's a piece. Um, and potentially an NFL piece is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. you know, Badger is straight up a good receiver. Kanye is straight up a good tight end. Um, I, I actually think despite, you know, all, all the offensive line calamity that like they actually do have at least one, maybe two good offensive linemen. It's just, hey, you need five, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Scatabo is fun as hell to watch. Borgay mm-hmm. is not a bad quarterback. Um, uh, uh, you know, Kenny Dillingham is a good play caller, as we all saw. Um, and he took the that responsibility back from Bo Baldwin after week three when they got shut out by Fresno State. Um, Ooh, yeah, like they've Brian Ward, their defensive coordinator, I think is one of the best uh, uh, uh hires in the conference this year. Um, I, I, I genuinely think that he's, you know, he's a pretty smart guy. He doesn't fall for tricks very easily. Um, uh, you know, his, his players might, but like, Hey, you, you don't get to directly puppet them. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, like there's, there's, uh, you know, as you say, like if things had gone, you know, I ideally, yeah, I definitely think this could have been a six or seven win team. Um, with the pieces that they had and they can sort of like hold it together with some cleverness and, and some luck. Uh, it's just that they had the opposite of that. Like, oh my God, uh, like the, the industry injury situation. It's not just bad. It, it's, it's widespread. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it, it, it hit every offensive position um, except for tight end. Uh it's hit their defensive line, which is their position of strength uh, on the defense uh, and uh, where it hit them on the offense uh, uh, hardest is the quarterback in the offensive line, which is like, that's the worst place to take injuries. So, I mean, it's like, I couldn't, if I were, if I were designing uh, an off uh, an injury situation like if you gave me x number of injury points to distribute on a football team to in order to maximum maximize the amount of awfulness that i did to a team i don't think i could do a, a better job than what reality has done to arizona state like it's i mean it's nuts um so yeah i'm totally sympathetic like I mean, I'd be sympathetic to anybody taking an injury like kids don't deserve that, obviously. But I mean, like I'm sympathetic in the sense that like like for anybody who looks at this team that's won like three games and is like, uh, you know, sort of pointing and laughing at like, oh, you know, this team must suck or, or, you know, must be terrible or or have like no talent or, you know, whatever. It's like that's totally not true. Or Kenny Dillingham did a terrible job, you know, ran off all the good players and like what what a clown this dude is like, no, 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 no. Nothing could be further from the truth. I actually think he did a pretty good job at roster management and like just the worst injury luck you can imagine. All right. I think that'll do it for us this week. Uh, uh, you got any parting words of wisdom for us, Tristan? Well, Sun Tzu said that opportunities multiply when they are seized. So we wish good fortune to the Sun Devils in the future, but hopefully this Saturday, Oregon will seize a lot of early opportunities and get out of this healthy for the stretch run here. Uh, yeah, I certainly hope uh, whatever it is that uh, ASU's caught is is not 
contagious. contagious. <laughs> yeah, and I was joking around with Hode Rubino, who's the uh, the Devil's Digest publisher, who we interviewed. That like like Kenny Dillingham, like piss off La Llorona. Uh yeah. He's like a, <laughs> a Mexican folklore figure. Um, uh, <laughs> it's like yeah, I, I hope that the curse doesn't transfer. Uh, yeah, uh, me too. Um, at the very least, uh, they got a uh, a one p.m. Pacific time kickoff, and the weather should be lovely. Um, uh in in sun devil stadium or they've changed the name now to to mountain america stadium which is dumb uh uh but it, it can't be any lovelier than here because it never rains on this podcast <laughs>